Good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day yet again to all the people who mother in so many ways. Um, So many of you mother my children, and I appreciate that. They need all the mothering they can get, so thank you for your partnership. But um, I'm curious if any of you moms got brought home, like, one of those little sheets where your kids, like, write down, like, your favorite thing and how old you are and um, your favorite food and all these kinds of things. They're, like, the cutest, right? It's always like, oh, man, what does my four-year-old? see about me. So I was very pleased as I started reading the one that Sam, my four-year-old, brought home. Um, It said that I was 21 years old. I really appreciated that one. That was great. Um, Let's see. What else did he say? He said, um, what was that? No, no, that wasn't me. Yeah. Yeah. The the funniest one was that it said that I liked that my favorite food was fish, which I do like fish, but it actually it's his favorite thing that I order that he gets to eat off my plate is the fish. That's how that actually goes. Yeah. And so it was all very sweet. He said he loved me because I was so cute, but it also sent home the Father's Day one in advance because school was about to be out. And so I didn't have any answers that were as epic as the one he put for Jeremy for Father's Day. It said, uh, my my dad is funny when he looks in the mirror. <laughs> that is a direct quote, y'all. So that was the happy Mother's Day to me. I like that one. But my mother, when I was growing up, she had in her kitchen this, this special china cabinet that her dad had built for her. And inside of it was her china that she had gotten at her wedding. Um, and I was just in awe of this china. You know, I'd walk in there and I'd look at it. Sometimes I'd even like drag the, drag my chair across the floor and like stand up and like stare in. But I never dared open up that cabinet and I, I uh, was never brave enough to like actually touch the china because I knew, right, like this, this is special, right? It's been set apart. And here I was with usually like grimy hands, you know, where I'd like been outside playing basketball or riding my bike or they'd be like covered in chalk where I'd hold my sister hostage back in our playroom and play teacher, you know, um, on the blackboard. Um, And then on top of that, um, I was very clumsy. And by was, I should say, I still am. Um, But, you know, like my legacy, the story they love to tell on me is that um, every Sunday we would go to my great-grandparents' house to have Sunday lunch. Maybe you go and have lunch with your family after church. And um, every time my great-grandfather, he had this great plan. Every time I would take a drink of my cup, he would quickly grab it and he would move it all the way over by his plate so that I would not knock it over and spill it. And so this would go on and on. Like I'd take a drink, he'd take it away and put it over. And this would happen again and again and again until eventually he would forget. And inevitably, I would do what I always did. And I would knock over my glass, and I would flood somebody's plate or the entire floor. And um, he had this classic line that he said every single time with great defeat in his voice. He would say, I knew she was going to do that. I just didn't know when, right? I've heard Jeremy say the same thing uh, because I continue this legacy today. But suffice to say, like, I... Even though my mother never actually, I don't think, vocalized this, I knew that me and the China, we did not mix. We were supposed to stay separate. And maybe you can think back to your mom and maybe there was something like that for you. Did anybody have like an object that you knew, like, look, don't touch? Yep. What was it, Eric? My mother 
Clowns. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. People are terrified of clowns are inwardly cheering for you right now, Eric. All right. <laughs> I'm glad you were safe. Thank goodness for the chair. All right. Anybody else have something new that they were supposed to look but not touch? No one? He, yeah, he, he had, a, yeah, elephants. You looked at the elephants. But yeah, so we, we probably had these things. Again, like we knew we were supposed to stay separate. So you can imagine my surprise when one day I walked into our kitchen and there on our table was my mother's china all set out for us to eat. It wasn't a special day or anything. We were just having a regular meal, but my mom had decided for whatever reason that, that this special China was going to join us that day. And I can't really explain it in, in a way that makes no sense at all. Somehow my steak that day was juicier and my mashed potatoes were creamier and my green beans were fresher than I had ever tasted them. This special china met our ordinary table and it was like magic. You know, like suddenly we were leaning in a little further and we were laughing a little louder and we lingered a little longer around the table. It was as if all things were right in the world in that moment. It was as if that china and our table were always supposed to go together. That dinner was just like a very tiny picture of this big concept in Jewish culture called shalom. This idea that our God is working toward peace, but not just like peace as we tend to think of it, like the absence of conflict, but rather the presence of abundance. Shalom is this picture of completeness and fullness and wholeness. It is, it is this picture of everything coming together like God always intended. Shalom is God's picture, his dream for our world. And not only is it his dream that he is always working toward, but it is the dream that he has invited all of his people across all time to join him in making a reality right here on earth. However, in Isaiah 58 that we read earlier, God, through the prophet um, Isaiah, is sending a very strong, a very fired up message to his people because they seem to have forgotten this. They have lost sight of God's dream and they have stopped living into their part of his plan to make it a reality. They were like the China staying up in the cabinet instead of bringing what they had to offer to the table of the world. They were this group of self-described righteous people. You know, they were very proud of that. They, they knew how to meticulously execute all of their religious observances. They were at the temple every time the doors were open. They brought all their sacrifices. They knew all their prayers and prayed them every time they were supposed to pray them. Um, they knew when to bow their head and stand up and sit down and kneel. They knew how to say all the proper things at all the right times. They knew... Um, went to fast and they did it just like God commanded them. Just like the beautiful patterns on my mother's china, they displayed all these intricate patterns of being the people of God. But they were very frustrated. <laughs> they 
They were grumbling that, that God, he wasn't answering their prayers. They keep praying for God to bring justice to the world. And they keep praying for God to come near. But God doesn't seem to be responding to them. And so in Isaiah Isaiah 58, verse 3, we have a report of their complaint. This is what they say. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Parents, this kind of sounds like our kids a little bit, you know, like um, when your kid's like 15 years old and suddenly after you've asked them all these years, they take out the trash for the first time and they come in and they're like, where's my Nobel Peace Prize, right? Or it's kind of like your kid putting a shirt um, in their in their drawer, you know, the shirt that you bought them and the shirt that you washed and the shirt that, that you dried and pressed and they actually put it in there and they're kind of like, why, why are you not jumping up and down and being excited, right? That's how God's people are being in this moment. They want to know where their reward is for all of their, their good behavior, for performing so well, but God is not impressed with them. And he has some questions for them to answer. This is Isaiah 58, 5. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Again, the problem is not that God's people are being unreligious. No, they're being hyper-religious, right? They are being overly correct and going through all the external religious motions. You know, go through the list. Fasting, check. Ashes, check. Sackcloth, check. Bowing in, check. They are putting their piety on display with the greatest of pride. But here's the problem. It's not changing anything. It's kind of like uh, my little boys when they start fighting over whose turn it is to play the Xbox. Does anybody else have this problem in their house? Um, They're fighting over it. And so I take it away for the one billionth time. And then suddenly they are so quick to perform the proper ritual. They're quick to turn to one another and say their I'm sorry's. And if they're really, really laying it on thick, there might even be a hug. And man, if there's a kiss, you know that they are really working at it, right? And as they perform these rituals and they turn to me and they're like, can we, can we have it back? Right? Yeah. But I know good and well that they are just going through the motions that underneath the surface, they are still seething and that they only really care about themselves. And then if I were to give it back to them, that a conflict would erupt in about 0.5 seconds. They might have performed the ritual, but no transformation has actually taken place. And in a similar way, this group of people, they were performing all the right rituals, but nothing was changing on the other side of it. True worship of God should lead to transformation, not just of us, but of the world around us. Our community should look different because we have been made different by the God that we are focusing our attention on. As we look to God and worship, our heart should begin to beat with his. We should begin to care about the kinds of things that he cares about in our world. But in essence, this group of people in Isaiah that's being addressed, they're, they're not really um, taking it that far. Yeah, they're letting God maybe put the outward patterns on them, but they want to stay safe up in that cabinet. 
They don't want to bring what they have to offer to the table. They've gotten so concerned about looking perfectly polished and protecting themselves from from, uh, any kind of pollution that they have forgotten their real purpose. And so God, through Isaiah, he spills it out for them. This is what he says. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? God says to them, you know those prayers that you keep praying about wanting me to bring justice? Do you know those prayers you keep praying about wanting me to come near? Guess what? You yourselves are the answers to those prayers. You are the arms through which I long to embrace this world with compassionate justice. You are the hands through which I desire to set things right, completing what is missing and repairing what is broken. You are the body through which um, I long for this world to experience my loving presence. You're the ones through which I want to bring this shalom. And so bring what you have to offer to the table and let's transform things together. You know, um, sometimes when you read a scripture that you've read before, you know, um, it's easy to just buzz right through it. But then sometimes like something you've never really focused on kind of jumps out at you. And that's what happened to me when I was studying um, this past week. Um, The verse that popped out at me was verse seven. And Brian, if you don't care, he's on it. Look at him back there. He's good. Um, It says that true fasting is to uh, not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. You know, you're going through that long list, and I think usually I was just like, okay, on to the next thing, and didn't really spend a whole lot of time on that. Whenever I see that phrase, your own flesh and blood, I think about your family, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, um, because that's how we tend to use that expression. (laughs) However, um, recently I've been rereading a book called Tattoos on the Heart by Father Gregory uh, Boyle, and um, as I was reading it, it makes me wonder, like this, this phrase, your own flesh and blood, if it means something so much richer than that. Um, If you're not familiar with that name, um, Father Gregory Boyle is a Jesuit priest. Um, He is, just to put it out there, what he looks like, he's an older white gentleman who has spent the last 40 years of his life serving gangs in California, okay? And you look at him in groups of people and you're like, oh, this are not two things you usually see together. You know, usually they're separate. But he has um, really um, built strong relationships in that area and um, has done great some work there. But he talks about this. He talks about how we as Christians spend a lot of time about serving others, talking about, talking about serving others, right? Which is great, But he talks about how that can kind of create um, this interesting dynamic, how it could create this separation between the the service provider and the service receiver, that there can be this distance that is created um, with this power dynamic, with this moral discrepancy, this moral distance between us and them. But here's the deal. God's dream is for us to recognize that there is no daylight between us. 
God's dream is for us to recognize that all of us are kin, that all of us are flesh and blood that we should not turn our backs on. His dream is for us to recognize that we all belong to each other. Kinship, being one with the other rather than serving the other, is the goal. It is the target that God is always moving us toward. And Father Boyle, he paints this beautiful picture of what it looks like as this begins to happen. He says, soon we imagine with God this circle of compassion. Then we imagine no one standing outside that circle, moving ourselves closer to the margins so that the margins themselves will be erased. We stand there with those whose dignity has been denied. We locate ourselves with poor and powerless and the voiceless. At the edges, we join the easily despised and the readily left out. We stand with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop. We situate ourselves right next to the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. Kinship is what God presses us onto, always hopeful its time has come. Kinship is this realization that we were never meant to be separate. It is this realization that we were never meant to be up in the cabinet at all, that we are all supposed to bring what we have to offer to the table, giving and receiving, reclaiming what it truly means to be human and restoring genuine community with the loving kindness that we ourselves have received from God. In 2018, our church had a chance um, to bring what we had to offer to the table of our community. And um, many of you have heard this story before, but it's part of our story. And what do we do when our family gets together? We tell our family stories over and over again, right? Um, and so here's one of our family stories. Abraham Williams um, is the director of the housing authority. And he had come to speak to our church. And um, as he was there, he was asked the question, what is the greatest need in the area surrounding the housing authority? And he said the greatest need was a grocery store. Now, whenever Abraham said that, we had some options. Um, on that night, we could have looked at Abraham and we said, you know what, Abraham, that sounds tough. We're going to pray for you to be able to start that grocery store. And we could have prayed over Abraham and we could have sent him back across the literal tracks in our community. And that probably, I would dare say, none of us, where none of us live and that many of us never visit. That could have been one option. Another option could have been that, that we looked at Abraham and we said, isn't that terrible? And then we went back um, and turned back inwardly on, uh, into our church and we said, okay, we're going to not really worry about that and still try to have like the very best Bible studies and have the most excellent worship that we can offer to our community and never given it another thought. We could have said, that sounds really hard and really messy. And, uh, you know, if we got involved in that, oh, man, like what if we got stained or, or chipped or broken? And we could have, have um, just looked in the other direction. But you, the people of this congregation, you remembered that we belong to each other. And so literally the next day we started sitting down at a literal table with Abraham and his staff. And uh, we began to, to listen to them because they had their finger on the pulse of what was happening in that neighborhood. And what we soon learned is that um, that area is 
was, um, and still is to some extent, a food desert. Um, that people who lived there could not walk to a grocery store. On top of that problem of not having a grocery store within that area was the fact that many people did not have transportation. They didn't have a car that they could just jump in and go and pick up what they needed somewhere else. Um, and then we have public transportation, but it's not very efficient. It takes a long time for a person to be able to go and get the bus, go get their stuff and come back, and then they can only bring the things that they can carry in their arms. And so what many people were having to do is they were having to go to these, um, they were having to go to these um, convenience stores, you know, at gas stations. And at the gas stations, they were um, having to get food that wasn't very nutritious, and they were having to pay lots of money for it. And so this was a big problem. Um, but we began to work together at one around, as one around that table, and we started looking for a location for a store. And every time, you guys, we would go and we would find a place that we thought was perfect. The door wasn't just closed on us. It was like slammed in our face. Um, there were people who really didn't want us to compete with those uh, convenience stores, suffice to say. And so um, we had to get more creative. We sat down back at the table, and that is when the idea of a mobile grocery store on a retrofitted bus was born. Decided if we couldn't, you know, get a grocery store to the people, then we would take the groceries to the people right where they were. And so all these different people brought what they had to the table. We had the people who lived in that community around that table. We were listening to their voices, and they told us what it was they wanted on that bus, and they told us when they were available, when it would be best for us to come and serve them. Uh, we had um, students from Western Kentucky University who came, and they made our business plan for us. Um, we, had, um, we had people from the farmer's market who was helping us understand like, how we could get fresh produce on the bus, the Bowling Green Public School stepped up and they donated the bus for us. And then so many of you all, so many people in our pews brought what they had to offer to the table as well. We had natural born leaders like Megan Davidson who stepped up and led the charge. Uh, we had lawyers who offered their guidance. We had graphic designers like Jason Orlando who offered their services. Uh, we had professional organizers who, who got on the bus and figured out how in the world we could, you know, have all the shelving we needed to take things um, to the people. Uh, we had electricians who came and they wired up the bus so that we could have freezers and fridges. We had runners who stepped up and created a 5K so that we could fundraise to, to make sure we were offering these, these items to the community at prices that were affordable. And the list could just go on and on and on and on of how people sitting in these pews stepped up to partner with their brothers and their sisters. How they looked at our community, they saw them as their own flesh and blood, and they refused to turn their back on them. How when that problem arose, it wasn't like that is their problem over there, but it became our problem because we recognized that we were one. This is our pattern as a church. Our pattern is to partner with other people and other organizations in our community that are already doing great work and then to join them, to just bring what we have to offer to the table as well, recognizing that God is always and everywhere at work seeking to bring things back together, seeking to set things right and make them whole once more. True worship transforms the world. 
What happens in here should change out there. The prayers we pray in private, they should shape the part that we play in the private sphere or the public sphere. In the Methodist tradition, we'd say that, that there are works of piety and there are works of mercy and that both matter. That in fact, both are essential, that you really cannot have one without the other. It's not an either or, but a both and kind of thing. This is how it kind of goes. Like when it comes to works of piety, when you and I come to worship, when we sing songs together, when we get into the scriptures, whenever we pray, what we're doing is opening ourselves up to receive God's great love for us. But then we're led to works of mercy. Works of mercy... Uh, like visiting the sick and feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and working to break systems of, of injustice because we have become conduits, right? We have received love from God and now that love is able to flow out through us into the lives of others. We have been shown mercy, become merciful. We who um, have been shown compassion, become compassionate. We have been, who have been forgiven, become forgiving. We have something to bring to the table because we have received for ourselves those things from God himself. And as we do, Isaiah says, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. As we become about what God is about in the world, as we stand with the people he stands with, as we do the kinds of things that he does, we begin to recognize that God is with us that he is right there at the table as well, giving us just a little taste of shalom right here in the present. You and I, we were always meant to bring what we have to offer to the table. We were never meant to be separate, but we're meant to bring it so that others can discover that they are just as loved, that they are just as chosen, that they are just as special as we have discovered that we are through God. And so, how can you offer the love that you have received from God in worship today? And, and how can you take that and, and extend it to the tables of your life in the week ahead? How is it that, that God can use you to be one of the people in our community that, that helps people to, to lean in a little further and to laugh a little louder and to linger a little longer? How is it that you can bring his love to the table of your family and the table of your workplace and the table of your neighborhood? How is it that you can bring him to the table of, of your sports teams and your um, supermarkets and schools? As you begin to see every person that you encounter, not as the other, but as your own flesh, as your own flesh and blood. Let's pray together. Lord God, we remember the example of Jesus. The example of, of the one who is willing to humble himself, who's willing to give up the glory of heaven so that he could come and become one of us and one with us. Lord God, we thank you for, for the way that you do love us. 
And we thank you for, for the way that you have poured out your grace into our lives so that we can give it away. God, I pray that you would open our eyes wide to go out into this world and to not see others, but to see our brothers and our sisters. And that you would prepare us with your strength and with your wisdom and with your patience and, and your goodness to partner with the people you put in our path, to set things right a little more on the earth, to bring things back together like you always intended. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.